Good morning, church. It's been a little while since I've been up here, so I'm slightly nervous. But uh, God is our provision and our strength, isn't he? So today we are continuing in our Bible Plotlines series, and today's title is The Family of God, and the subtitle is The Spiritual Family of God and his mighty love. So let's just remind ourselves of what God's love is like. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through to 8a, and it's often quoted at weddings, which you may notice a connection there throughout this sermon. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And the whole Bible tells the story of God's love for us and his relationship with us. And it's far too much to fit into one sermon. So today we'll just be stone skimming through the Bible to pick out the most relevant family of God moments. I want to just start with a, a story, true story. <laughs> 45 years ago, at the age of 12, I was living with my parents and my older brother and sister in Botswana, Southern Africa. And during the Easter holidays, my grandmother flew out to visit. And my dad decided to combine her visit with our school break to make a trip to the Maremi Game Reserve, which was in the north of Botswana, as a protected area for wildlife, uh, which is very concentrated in that area because of the Okavango Delta. The Delta covers 6,000 to 15,000 kilometers square and is a vast seasonal network of lakes, rivers, and swamps created by the Okavango River merging with the sands of the Kalahari Desert. At that time, the area was uninhabited except for a few local tribespeople who lived on the edge of the delta. And they fished, hunted, and they kept a few cattle. They didn't go into the delta area because of tsetse fly, which is uh, very dangerous to cattle. It was a nine-hour drive from where we lived to Maun, which was the last village, and a further eight hours along a single sandy pothole-ridden track to the game reserve. Preparation was key. We needed a vehicle up to the challenge of driving off-road and powerful enough to pull itself out if we got stuck in the sands. 
My dad borrowed what was, at that time, a state-of-the-art Land Rover. Four-wheel drive. It had a twin-skinned roof to keep the occupants cool. There was no air con at that time in vehicles, so a twin-skinned roof was the ultimate in cooling us off. And with temperatures reaching regularly on a daily basis, 30 degrees centigrade, it was well needed. <coughs> My dad, who's a mechanic, checked the vehicle over completely to make sure that it was working properly and to the best of its ability. There were no sat-navs, no mobile phones. We were heading into an area completely isolated and out of communications from the rest of the world. No radio, nothing. Everything we needed, we had to take with us. And there had to be an order with all the equipment necessary that we needed to take. We had to make sure that it was packed and loaded in a certain way to enable access to certain items such as fuel, water, tools and first aid. But also it had to be packed to remain fixed in the vehicle because of the bumpy roads. Uh, you know, you just can't have everything shaking around and flying out in front of you. It had to be packed to make sure that the windows were clear and still had to have space for three adults, and two teenagers and myself. The provisions we took included camping equipment, sleeping bags, cooking equipment, food, clothing, every, everything we needed for the whole week. I've already mentioned tools, water, fuel and first aid. We also took a tow rope and a hijack. Some of you might know that one, what that is. It's uh, apparently, so my dad tells me, <laughs> it's a really, uh, it's a jack that can crank the Land Rover up to a really high level uh, and keep it safe if any work is needed on it underneath. Through the preparation, order and provision, we had protection. To me, at that time, it was a great adventure. I was totally unaware of the potential for danger. We had one of the best vehicles for the terrain. We had all the equipment and provisions we would need and we had each other. My grandmother was a nurse and my dad was a mechanic and he was incredibly practical in all things. I had faith and trust in him that we could deal with any problem that we might face. And this morning, I want to demonstrate how our Heavenly Father, with his mighty love, is expressed to his family through preparation, order, provision and protection. So we start with the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created. Before the first family were created, God prepared the world and the environment to enable them to be fruitful and increase. He prepared light, water, land and vegetation, and he established order 
by setting boundaries for the water, the sun, moon and stars, to serve as signs to mark seasons, days and years. He created and prepared creatures of the sea, birds of the air and creatures of the land. The complete world and its atmosphere were created for us. Just as a side note, if you travel upwards in altitude, just five miles, there is insufficient oxygen to sustain human life. And 12 miles in altitude, your blood can actually boil unless you're in a pressurized environment. At verse 29 and 30, it says that both man and all the creatures were plant eaters. There was no death, there was no killing of animals for us to eat at that time. That didn't come in until after the flood. And in chapter 2, verse 12, we're told that there is gold, aromatic resin and awnings in the land. So God prepared the world for future, not just at that time what was needed, but um, special precious metals and jewels and things of that we value were there already. The garden itself provided everything that Adam needed. I often think of a garden as a pretty, nice, colourful place with a lawn and flowers and shrubs. But this garden was planted with trees, more like an orchard, pleasing to the eye and good for food. There was a river watering the garden, and in the middle of the garden was the tree of life, which Adam had access to, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God's single command was not to eat from it. God recognises that Adam needs a helper so he doesn't feel alone. And using one of Adam's ribs, he creates a woman. At chapter 2, 25, we read that the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I'm not sure how you would feel if you went into work tomorrow and stood in front of your boss naked. But sin had not yet entered the world there was no feeling of shame. And this is really difficult to get your head round because there were no negative feelings. There was no pain, sorrow, fear, anxiety, greed, hate, jealousy. It's an incredible to imagine, difficult to imagine. So what was there instead? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So when Adam first saw the woman, he would have seen her through God's eyes as a beautiful, pure, and innocent bride. It was love at first sight. He recognised they were literally made for each other. 
She was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. A match made in heaven. Because there was a marriage. Just mention chapter 2, 25, the man and his wife. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, She gave some to her husband. And verse 8, the man and his wife. This is the God-ordained order for intimate relationships and provides the best environment for the nurture and growth of children. God created mankind in his image, meaning we have morality, reason and free will. Marriage represented and still represents the spiritual relationship that God wants with mankind. Marriage is a joining together of a man and woman physically, emotionally and spiritually that is not possible in any other form of relationship. Marriage in God's form gives full blessing and provision in him and we see that in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 which says God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Marriage was designed to be a lifelong commitment between husband and wife for their mutual benefit, for their family and for the foundation of a godly society. God intended to be part of that relationship. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Sadly, in today's society, God is often left out of people's lives, and so they make their own rules for living by and try to compensate the lack of God's presence by filling it with fleshly desires or lies from the enemy. This can result in relationships that are not godly, where instead of commitment, there is casual connection. Instead of mutual benefit through compromise and sacrifice, there is demand and unmet, unrealistic expectations. Our young women are told they can have everything, but I see young women struggling to cope with trying to manage work life, child rearing and keeping house. And our young men are told they aren't needed. And I see young men who seem lost and without purpose, who are unable or unwilling to take responsibility in a relationship as a husband or father. And I say that purely as an observation, I'm not condemning or condoning anybody. Marriage was intended to be based on love, loving God first, and then loving each other. But back in the garden, where God, Adam and his wife are enjoying that kind of relationship, a crafty wild animal was about to disrupt and destroy that bond. Now as a woman, in her defence, Adam's wife, the woman only knew truth and love, having been in God's presence. 
but she chose to believe one of God's creatures rather than God himself. The result was catastrophic for mankind. It's like a pack of cards that you build up in a tower. It just takes one card to fall and everything just collapses. A complete set of new emotions and behaviours came about. In chapter 3, verse 8 to 13, Adam and his wife hide. That's shunning responsibility. Fear came in. Disobedience, blame, deception. Verse 14, the serpent became the most cursed creature and had to eat dust and crawl on its belly. There was hostility between its offspring and the woman's. For the woman, there was a great increase in pain in childbirth and birth itself, an imbalance between husband and wife. For Adam, the ground is cursed and work now becomes a painful toil, hard and sweaty work, and food production is hampered by thistles and thorns, and life is no longer eternal. They are to return to the ground and to dust. Death in all its forms had entered the world, yet despite this, and immediately after God's curses and judgments, Adam calls his wife Eve, the mother of all the living. It's a beautiful demonstration of his continued love and commitment to her by naming her after her potential and godly purpose, despite the huge mistakes she made. Protection by God is now needed. God covers Adam and Eve with a garment of skin. He covers their shame. And knowing that they can disobey his spoken word, because they've already done it, he puts a cherubim with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the entrance to the garden, to prevent them from eating from the tree of life and so protecting them from an eternal life in sin. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden and God's presence. God has to drive them out. They don't want to go. But God tells us in Exodus 33:20, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. The plan for God's family seemed dead. But God was already preparing another family, not just individuals willing to be obedient to him, but the birthing of a whole nation, the nation of Israel. God had made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars and that they would have possession of their own land. Abraham didn't even have a child with his wife Sarah at the time, but he believed God and was credited as righteous. 
God prepared Abraham in Genesis 15.13 that his descendants would be strangers in a country not their own. They would be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. God would punish the nation who enslaved them and afterwards they would come out with great possessions. Now the promise was about to come to fruition with the nucleus of a nation enslaved in Egypt. Moses has recently returned as God's appointed leader and God reaffirms his promise in Genesis 6, verse 2. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God." Through miraculous signs and wonders, God was strengthening and encouraging Israel's faith. Exodus 12:11. God prepares Israel for the moment when Pharaoh will soon tell them to leave. The Passover lamb is prepared, and God says, This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. And verse 51 says, And on that very day the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. God created order by establishing his laws and ten commandments for the nation to abide by in Exodus 20. And Numbers 2, he establishes the order in which the families and tribes are to camp around the tabernacle. He establishes an army of fighting men and Numbers 34 and 35 describes the division of the promised land. Throughout Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, there are extensive laws and rules which include religious practices, property, health and hygiene, sexual relationships, blessings for obedience, and curses for disobedience. Foundations for a godly nation that should stand out as living, thinking and behaving differently to all other nations who were pagan and worshipped false gods. God's provision for Israel started right at the beginning of the Exodus. At chapter 12, verse 35 and 36, we're told the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. Exodus 16 tells us that the Lord provides bread from heaven and meat from quail, and chapter 17 describes the provision of water. Even in their complaining, God provides for the Israelites. Exodus 31 describes God's provision of giftings. See, I have chosen Bazalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, 
with skill, ability and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Hisamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything I have commanded you. God's protection is seen in Exodus 17.8, where the Amalekites attack the Israelites. Moses goes to the top of a hill with the staff of God in his hands and holds his hands in the air which enabled Joshua and the fighting men to overcome the Amalekites. And in Numbers 23 and 24, Balaam prophecies over Israel, saying, How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? God longed for an intimate relationship with Israel. In Exodus 19 verse 4, God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Israelites respond at verse 8. We will do everything the Lord has said. God sees this as a spiritual union, a marriage, and he dwells among them in the tabernacle as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God calls the nation of Israel his wife, and while the nation is obedient to him, it prospers and is successful, but then forgets God and is drawn by the surrounding nations into idolatry, which God sees as adultery. This is a repeating theme, where Israel is constantly called by God to return to him. Isaiah 54, 5 For your Maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And the book of Hosea describes God's emotions towards Israel, and through Hosea living it out. It says, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. Hosea 2 verse 2 tells us that God alienates Israel. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. The nation is overpowered by its enemies. There is division and civil war, trade and prosperity fade, and Israel seems to drift without direction or purpose. The plan for God's spiritual family seems lost, but God was already planning a saviour, not just for a nation, but for the world, the church. When I reached this point of my sermon when I was writing it, I was trying to think how to start it, and I told my husband I was stuck, and jokingly he said, oh, do you want some help? To which I replied, I'm trying to think 
how to introduce Jesus. My husband's response, and he is not a Christian, does Jesus need an introduction? So Jesus, the man who needs no introduction, God in human form enters the world to save it. Jesus spends around three years preparing his disciples, teaching and training them and demonstrating God's love. He sends out the twelve and the seventy-two. He prepares them for his death, resurrection, ascension and return, although they don't understand it at that time. Matthew twenty-four forty-two. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Luke twenty-one thirty-six. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of God. Jesus establishes order. In Matthew 3.13 it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. Jesus re-established order with God's law and how it is to be understood. Matthew 5.21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Matthew 5:27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5:43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus re-establishes order of purpose for his disciples. In Mark 16:15, he says to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Jesus creates provision with the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. He heals many people, enabling them to support and provide for themselves. But the greatest provision he creates is to enable each one of us to have access to God the Father. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can have that close relationship once more and live in God's presence.
John 14.2, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus also says in John 14.16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. On his ascension, Jesus provides the Holy Spirit for the Church. Despite severe persecution in the early Church, God has protected it to enable it to grow into fulfilment of Jesus' commission. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8:28, We know that God works all things together to good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And in Ephesians 1, 7, we read in him, that's Jesus, we have redemption, in other words, protection, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. As part of his church, I'm sure many of us can testify to God working in our lives, that we can look back and see how he has prepared us for things that we are now facing, or where there was a chaotic time in our lives when God re-established order, or a time perhaps when God has provided for us, either financially or in another way, or maybe a time when he's protected us. God loves us, we are his children, and as a church, we are the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, 22-32 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And in Matthew 9.15, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, Recently, I had a conversation with someone who uh, is a tech geek 
they love their science and technology. And uh, they were telling me about AI, artificial intelligence. This is a really exciting development in science. He was saying that scientists are considering it to be the next revolution. We've had the industrial rev revolution, we've had computer revolution and AI is going to be the next big revolution. And for those who don't know, and as I understand it, <laughs> AI are computers that can understand and combine information to problem solve, initially with prompts from humans, but eventually in the future, they'll be able to do this on their own. AIs are going to be uh, running their own programs, designing and developing their own problem-solving programs. These AIs, scientists believe, will be able to do this faster and with more accuracy than their human counterparts. And he was saying it's an incredible and exciting development. Some scientists are even debating and theorising how far AI can go suggesting that it may be in control eventually of big, complex world problems and that it could develop and run programs in the style of a mini-world to see how the problems would play out. And this has apparently got some scientists debating and theorising the fact that actually we, our world, could be a mini-world for an AI. And I said, that's really interesting that some scientists are only now considering that an intelligent being outside of our time and space may have created our world. Church, we don't need to debate and theorize because we know that in the beginning, God created. He was there in the beginning and he will be there at the end, and so will we. Everything that died or was lost because of sin will be restored. Isaiah 65 verses 17 to 19 Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. And verse 24, before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. So there's the return of vegetarianism. But dust will be the serpent's food. The serpent remains under the curse. From Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. 
and I heard a loud voice from the throne room saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Do you remember I mentioned the Garden of Eden was more like an orchard with trees and a river? Revelation 22 Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse, as over the nations, not the serpent. You know, I love it when Jess and Tundi sometimes turn up at church in their African tunics, or when Grace and Sandra wear their saris, because that gives us a small glimpse of the multitudes that one day we will worship with in heaven. What a privilege it is to be part of the family of God, to know his mighty love for us, a love that is unconditional, a love that heals, restores and protects us. God doesn't just love us, he is love. Through him we have faith and hope for the future. Until Christ returns, we are called home. And I just want to finish with 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, that says, And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Amen.